Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me with freedom. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just and the Suffering Podcast between New York Sports Talk and a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. Our second episode of the week. Earlier this week, we talked about the NLE playoffs with the baseball beat. We broke down why the Yankees lost. All, looked ahead to the AL Championship Series and National Championship Series. Those are both in progress. Today, we're going to do our NFL picks. I'm going to be joined just a bit by a good friend of mine, Giants fan Phil Lombardo. We'll talk a little bit about Giants-Cowboys. Look ahead to what's going on with them this week. And make our picks for week number six. Show me the uh, show me the money. Also gonna do our pop culture. We're gonna be joined by Alan Austin. We are going to break down the HBO documentary on Craig Carton, Loudmouth, or Wildcard, excuse me, downfall of a loudmouth. We're gonna break that down, talk a couple other things and things as well. We're talk excluding the premiere of the Haunting of Bly Manor. We checked that out as a for podcast recording. This conversation happened last Saturday. We'll have to watch the premiere, share our thoughts on that, a couple other things as well. But we'll get it all started this week's opening tip. We will talk about the NBA Finals and what happened there right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. All right, we are back here. Opening tip time on the podcast. Talking about the NBA Finals. They wrapped up on Sunday. The Lakers took care of business, as I predicted with Martino Pucci on the podcast last week. The Lakers win in six. They take care of business. They knock off the heat. And this series, it was pretty fun. I mean, the numbers were down. And obviously, the NBA is not going to be competing with the NFL or the baseball playoffs. It's not something you're used to. So numbers were certainly down, but it was a good series. LeBron James is great, as always, wins his fourth NBA Finals MVP. The reason the series goes as far as it does is because Jimmy Butler has some heroic performances in Game 3 and Game 5, but this was the Lakers' title to lose the moment the Clippers went out of here. Let's be honest. The Clippers and the Bucks are the two teams that would give the Lakers a challenge. Both went out in the conference semifinals, so it was basically the Lakers' only chance to lose was if the Lakers shot themselves in the foot, and they did not. Anthony Davis, outstanding throughout the series. Proved to be a matchup problem for the Heat. I know that he had some injury issues with Bam Adebayo and Goran Dragic missing time, but even if they were healthy, this is still a Lakers win. And this means a lot for LeBron's legacy because he now is up to four NBA titles, four NBA final MVPs. I did find it interesting that after he won the championship, he made a point of saying that, I that quote, I want my damn respect. And... It is fair to say LeBron does not get enough respect in the NBA community for what his greatness is. Everyone compares LeBron to Michael Jordan, obviously, because of they are the two greatest players to play in the modern era. Michael Jordan, obviously, six for six in finals, all with the Bulls. LeBron now is a different sort of thing, and I think it's an interesting comparison here because this is not apples to apples. It's not LeBron with the Cavaliers staying there the whole career and winning championships. Le- LeBron won with the Heat twice. He won with the Cavs once. Now he's won with the Lakers. His third time bringing a franchise to an NBA championship. And I get, yes, the Lakers had Anthony Davis basically force his way there. 
and LeBron did what he had to do to get the role pieces in here. But at the end of the day, for what he is as a player, he's a much different kind of great player than Michael Jordan. As I think the comparison is not exactly a fair one because they do very different things. Like Jordan, all-time great scorer, physical defender, but like he's not a guy who can guard one to five like LeBron can. LeBron does everything on the floor. LeBron rebounds. LeBron can run the point. LeBron can dish the ball. Like, literally, the thing that stood out most to me is in Game 5 of this series. The one they lost to make it 3-2. Three, three, LeBron's driving down the lane in the final seconds. Triple teamed. Passes back to a wide-open Danny Green. Gets criticized because Danny Green misses the shot. Meanwhile, back in the last dance, back in April, we were talking about how Michael Jordan made great decisions passing a John Paxson for game-winning shots and passing a Steve Kerr for making game-winning shots. If Danny Green sinks the bucket, we're talking about, oh my God, LeBron's a great teammate. He was unselfish. He did the right thing. Instead, the shot doesn't go in. It's, oh, LeBron has to take the shot. No, he doesn't. He's triple team. What chances does that have going in? He made the correct basketball play to a guy who had nobody within 50 feet of him. And he got criticized because Danny Green missed the shot. This is the kind of thing we get with LeBron. And he also should get credit here because he's going to win the most unique title in NBA history. This title, obviously, with the bubble being basically cut off from the rest of outside society for a solid three and a half months when they showed up in July to warm up through October when they finished the series. It's going to be a unique title for sure. All sorts of outside distractions with protests, political stuff, not being able to leave the bubble, and they persevered, they want it all. And that's something that will not have an asterisk in my book. That's something that I think adds to his legacy because he's done something that Michael Jordan can never do. And granted, Michael Jordan would never want to have to do what LeBron did to win a championship, but he has one. Now the question becomes to me, what happens to the NBA next year? Because obviously we are going to be a little bit away from the coming back. Adam Silver said during the NBA Finals that they're targeting January for return. We know the NBA draft is November 18th. They need to set the salary cap for that so we have an idea of what we're doing here. I expect we're going to get a number on that close to the end of this, this month. We have free agency in December. The target, and these are some dates that have been floating on a great athletic article by John Hollinger about the NBA next season. The target date here was seen to be Martin Luther King Day. And that seems, that's a good day significantly for the NBA. And we had a good showcase for them to open up all that way. They're talking about doing some unique things to the schedule where maybe you play instead of doing, oh, we're going to Detroit one night, Indiana one night, Denver one night. We're talking, okay, let's alter the schedule here and make it so we play one team and a certain number of games back-to-back. Like, let's say the Knicks play the Pistons four times next year. They could play two in Detroit, fly back, play two in New York. It's requiring more back-to-backs, but if you're reducing travel, that helps. Then NBA obviously wants to get fans back in the building, so the waiting longer makes sense because by then maybe you'll have more access to the rapid test where you could screen fans coming to the arena, make sure they don't have the virus on the way in. It'll make it easier to travel. I could see them obviously trying to, you know, start here, and maybe if the timetables are right and we have mass distribution of vaccine by April, maybe by the end of the season you'll have people there and you have full arenas of the playoff games. I think the long run, they obviously want to get as close back to the regular calendar as soon as possible. They could, in theory here, 
if they move up and play the wrap the season up by June 14th, as Hollinger's article on the Athletic says, we do that. You play the playoffs in two months. You're done in September. You slowly kind of creep it back. Like next year, you can start probably if the NBA finals are done before football kicks off. You could push to have November be the start of your season, condense a little, and you're back on your calendar. I think that makes a lot of sense long term because the NBA has learned they don't want to be competing with the NFL in their playoffs. They don't want to be competing with Major League Baseball down the stretch. They don't want to be in the summer because the summer T-rings are bad. There's people are going out, people are going to the beach, people are going on vacation. They're not plopping down and watch the NBA. I think the sooner they get back on schedule, the better. And I think this experience is unique. Hopefully, for their sake, this is the last time we have to do this. Up next, we'll do NFL picks with Phil Lombardo right after this. Show me the money. All right, show me the money. NFL picks are here for week number six. It's been a very interesting year to say the least. Join me today. Somebody last we last talked to during the last dance back in April. My good friend and Giant fan, Phil Lombardo. Phil, how are you? I'm doing great, Mike. It's great to be back. I'm excited. It's exciting, and it's easy for us because we're sitting at home with our computers without risking coronavirus, but the NFL's had a much harder time dealing with this. Yeah, they definitely have, but you know what? You know, So far, they've taken care of business, but I, it's, it's only going to get more complicated from here. It absolutely will, and I mean, just to make the point, last week in week five, we had Denver, New England, ready to go on Sunday afternoon. They have a COVID test, like test positive day up for New England, and I don't know if you saw, but they had to do quite a bit of shuffling. Did you, did you manage to keep track of all the changes? I didn't keep track of all the changes, to be honest with you, because I know that there's going to be more changes coming that are going to affect the changes they just made, so it's just things are going to keep happening, and they're going to have to keep shuffling things around and eventually teams are going to have to forfeit games or they're going to have to just completely cancel games. They might, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the NFL ends up removing one game from each team's season to kind of counteract everything that's going on. Yeah. Well, luckily for you, I did write down all the changes. So if you want to take out a pen and paper, I'll go over for listeners to what's going on with the schedule. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah, I'll keep a mental note. <laughs> all right. So we'll start off here. This is from the NFL's Twitter, NFL's Twitter account. The league announced Sunday afternoon a number of scheduling changes stemming from this week's postponement. Among them is that the Broncos-Patriots game we moved to week six on Sunday, October 18th at 1 p.m. Eastern on CBS. So, okay, so we got that. Broncos-Patriots back a week. Seven other games affected by the postponement. We'll start off with the Kansas City Chiefs at Buffalo Bills week six game moves from Thursday, October 15th to Monday, October 19th at 5 o'clock p.m. That's one. The Jets at Dolphins game moves from week 10 to week 6. The Jets-Chargers game moves from week 6 to week 11. Phil, let me know if I'm losing you at any point. You already have. <laughs> I'll, keep, yeah. I'll keep going. Anyway, just to the people who are following along. The Jaguars at Chargers game moved up from week 8 to week 7. The Chargers-Broncos game moved from week 11 up to week 8. Chargers-Dolphins game moves from week 7 to week 10. So there's a lot of moving parts. Let's see for the Chargers. Dolphins-Broncos, who's going to schedule this week, goes back to week 11. As a result, six teams now have different bye weeks. Denver goes back from goes up from week 8 to week 5. New England up from week 6 to week 5. 
Los Angeles Chargers from week 10 to week 6. Miami up from week 11 to week 7. Jacksonville back from 7 to 8. And the Jets up from 11 to 10. And at this point in the words of the great Vince Lombardi. What the hell's going on out here? This is a disaster. It's an absolute disaster. And right now, all I can think about is fantasy football owners everywhere who, when they were doing their drafts, they go, oh, I only got two guys on this week. I got two guys on this week. None of my weeks are going to be messed up. And now, all of a sudden, everything's just getting moved around and people are pulling their hair out. Yeah, you and I are both fantasy football commissioners, so we have to sit here and come out on the fly. Like, what are we going to do if they don't play the Titans-Bills game, even though it did get played? What are we going to do for our own – for our – fellow managers of the league doesn't play these games. Yeah, and, you know, me and you did the same exact thing. We, we, we gave people the option to, you know, just phone in or, you know, shoot a text over to us and have a backup plan. You know, we weren't going to let people um, pick people pick people up after the fact to plug into their lineups, but if they had them on their team already, they could have their plan B players and we would plug them in manually. And I think that's how everybody should do it, at least right now while we can't, while it's, it's easy enough. If it gets more complicated, we'll have to figure out a different method. But for now, this works. Yeah, we're lucky to the point where it's only been like one game in clear doubt. But like, imagine like if you're in a week where all of a sudden there's four games, you don't know if they're going to play or not. Then you're going to have like real problems with the NFL. Yeah, and you know what? You know, baseball baseball had to do it where, you know, the Cardinals didn't play for what, two weeks? The yeah. uh, Marlins didn't play for 11 days or something like that. So imagine having them have a team just not play for two weeks because of what's going on. I just don't see how logistically it's going to work. Yeah, I don't either. I mean, it's going to be a very inequitable season. I think the obvious thing, which our good friend Nick Friata criticized when we, the schedule came out in back in, I want to say May, was like, they really acted like it was going to be business as usual, where, okay, we're going to have our normal schedule. We put a couple of things in here where, like, the week two teams have a share of the bye week, but, like, they really should have put in an extra bye week this year to get themselves more wiggle room, but they sort of banked on the country being over the coronavirus by the time the season kicked off, and they completely lost that bet. Yeah, well, the thing was, I think they also had the capabilities, at least, to move the season start up one week and then add that extra bye weekend because they weren't have, they didn't have a preseason. So you had those four weeks to play with that they just did nothing. You know, and teams weren't, you know, teams weren't even, you know, they weren't doing much. And then all of a sudden you just start the season and everybody's cold and you just kind of wing it. I don't know. I mean, I, I will say this, though. I'd rather have a team forfeit a game than push things back to the point where you start screwing up the week after and the week after and the week after. Because if the league starts digging too deep of a hole, it's going to create a logistical problem that they, they're not going to have a solution for, and it could completely ruin the season. Yeah, I think one thing I'll be um, um, alert for here is, like, I would not be shocked they move the Super Bowl back a couple of weeks. because They had the flexibility to do it. I know for a while they wanted to get closer to President's Day weekend, so people have the Monday off after work. I'm going to work after the Sunday night Super Bowl. So I would not be surprised if they somehow are forced to try that this year. I, don't, I think it would not be a bad idea. It would no, it wouldn't be a bad idea at all. And I think everybody would be very thankful for that. <laughs> yes, they would. And speaking of teams that are thankful, unfortunately, your Giants are not quite there yet. They had a tough game against the Cowboys last week. I thought for a while you would get that first win, but it just didn't happen at the end of the game. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it was an, another tough loss for the Giants. Um, there's basically three things I'd like to say in regards to this game. Um, first and foremost, you know, thoughts and prayers out to Dak Prescott. I mean, I, you know me, I hate the Cowboys more than most people hate the Cowboys. 
Um, I wish nothing but losses on their overall record, but you'd never want to see an injury like that, especially to a guy like him, who honestly, since he's been in the league, he's carried himself like a, a, a pro, and he just seems like a really good guy. He does a lot with charity, and I honestly wish nothing but the best for him. But once he gets better, he, he, he can lose to the Giants every single time for all I care. Yeah. I um, yeah. Go ahead. No, I'll say go ahead. I think that's a good point with Dak. Obviously, like, tough spot for him, but, like, and for me, the thing that sticks out to me this game also is, like, the turnovers that Daniel Jones commits are just very problematic, and I was also discouraged watching that game, knowing that he got the ball back, and he has to go down, win the game, basically went three and out, and then Dallas guy went right down the field for the win. Yeah, so, I mean, we'll, we'll get into it a little bit more when we talk about Daniel Jones in more detail, but, yeah, what, what, some of the decisions he's, he's made this season have been very worrisome, to say the least. Yeah. What else did you have? That, what, else, what else bothered you about that game? Well, the one thing that, you know, bothered me the most is that the Giants actually outplayed the Cowboys. And I'll say that until I'm big blue in the face. I know that's an awful pun, but I had to say it because I thought of it earlier. And I'm like, I got to just throw that in there and just make people cringe. Of course. Um, <laughs> but they, honestly, like the Giants at this point in their in their history are so stuck in their losing ways. They just continue to find ways to lose. The fumble by Jones to give the defensive touchdown right back to the Cowboys when they were up 17-3 after their defensive touchdown, and then they gave up a touchdown on offense, and then Jones gives, gives up a fumble, and they tie the game up. That's number one for me. Number two, that illegal formation on the Giants on an absolutely brilliant fake field goal call by Joe Judge. Honestly, I, haven't, I can't remember the last time the Giants called a fake punt, fake field goal. Maybe I, I don't know if I've ever seen it or can ever remember them doing it. And honestly, like the inability to play the ball in the air on two straight throws by Andy Dalton to Michael Gallup on the final drive. Yeah, those, those are the three things that really stick out to me in that game. You know, that really just bugged me because those those three things, one of them goes in our favor, then we end up winning the game. You do. I do think the call on that on that penalty there on the on the fake field was also a little ticky tack. So I do I do feel for the Giant fans there because even Tony Romo is as big a cowboy guy as there is. That boy, Giants got screwed on that. Yeah, I, I understand that that calls are going to be missed or calls are going to be made that might be a little ticky-tack. But honestly, it's just like, leave no doubt. Leave no doubt at the end of the day. And I mean, I just, let me just throw this in there. Of course, Greg Zerline, when he, hit, when he kicks that field, he has to tease us by making the ball wiggle to the right like it's going to go wide, only to come back and sneak right inside the goalpost for another classic Giants loss. Yeah, it certainly is a classic loss for the Giants. But we have seen through the five games that Joe Judge here, they do not have a win yet, but... They have been far more competitive than my guys who haven't even bothered playing in four of the five games. So what's your take about year one of Joe Judd so far? Yeah, I mean, honestly, the wins aren't there yet, and I don't like it, obviously. I don't like it. Joe Judge definitely doesn't like it, and I know the front office doesn't like it. They are sick of losing. But I have seen some things that give me slight hope. You know, a couple of positives, did, and I'll just throw a few players is that, you know, a couple of guys we got in free agency look like they're, you know, they're legitimate starting football players in the NFL, which some of the Giants defenders haven't been in the last few years. Blake Martinez, he's a player. The Giants haven't had a legitimate middle linebacker since Antonio Pierce. And the defense is clearly more organized and running with him running the show. James Bradbury, he's a player. He was good in Carolina, but he's taken the next step in, in New York, and he's really shown that he could be a leader and a legitimate number one corner. And thirdly, I think everybody saw it if you watch the Giants-Cowboys game at least, that Darius Slayton proved that he, his rookie year was absolutely no fluke. He can ball. And if Jones can get any sort of protection, 
there is no reason why he should not be catching five-plus balls a game. And then, you know, for the rest of the season, he could definitely score six to eight more touchdowns. But other than that, there's just not too much to be proud of in East Rutherford. But when it comes to Joe Judge, you know, he's kind of at, you know, the mercy of Dave Gettleman right now. But I don't think that's going to last much longer. I think Dave Gettleman's gone next year. I think they, you know, they just cut their losses because he's just made too many questionable decisions, and then have, they haven't seen any results. Even if they, some of the guys he's picked have worked out for them, it, it, they just haven't seen the results. And you know, maybe when it comes down to it, we get a guy in New York that sees eye to eye with Joe Judge when it comes to changing the culture, and we see some real differences in 2021. But I will say this: I think the team is playing harder than it has in years. And I do see noticeable improvement in defense and special teams. That I can definitely say definitively. Um, so while the verdict's still out on Coach Judge because it's a result-based business, and let's be honest, they're 0-5, I do hold out some hope that they can turn things around. But that really just relies on them getting rid of Dave Gettleman and bringing somebody in that actually knows how to change the culture. Yeah, as far as the Gettleman goes there, I mean, obviously he's had some questionable moments in the draft, and this year is no exception. I know it's only five games, but like, Andrew Thomas has not looked good at left tackle so far, and it doesn't make you feel good when you look across town. You see Mekhi Beck look an absolute stud for the Jets. No, it does, and there was a lot of options out there, and I will say Tristan Wirfs. He he um he looks like he's a player for Tampa. You know, I mean, I think guys are just terrified into being good players when Tom Brady's their quarterback because for <laughs> some reason they just keep whenever he has offensive linemen that just they come out of nowhere and they're amazing, and it's just very annoying. But. You know, I will say this. It's year one. Andrew Thomas was not supposed to necessarily even have to be pushed into a starting role. And then Nate Solder, of course, decides that he doesn't want to play football. So, um, you know, that's the, you're, you're kind of forced to throw the rookie right in there. And I think, you know, he's a smart kid. He's a strong kid. He's a big kid. He has decent feet. He just needs to work, work on his footwork. And, he, you know, I, I think he improves year two and on. But, you know, it is nerve-wracking when you see a guy like Mekhi Beckton who seemed ready from day one. Yeah, it does. And I think the big question the Giants have to answer here is like what Daniel Jones is and if he can get rid of these turnover problems because like we talked about it last year, like, oh, fumbles are correctable. He had a great year passing, but the fumbles have continued. He's made a couple of bad decisions passing the football. And to me, if I'm a Giant fan, like if my team somehow outdoes the Jets in terms of suck and ends up at number one, I do have to think strongly about Trevor Lawrence. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think obviously there's still – 11 weeks left, you know, there's still 11 games for him to write the ship. But, you know, I will say this at the end of last year, I was on the DJ train. I wasn't necessarily happy with the pick when they made it, but he showed me something, you know, he, he, he really just, he showed some toughness. He showed the ability to move around in the pocket. He was working through his progressions. He was making a lot of tough throws and pushing the ball downfield better than Eli certainly was towards the end of his career. And obviously the fumbling was an issue, but that was something that everybody, you know, thought that he could work on and fix over time. But after watching him these first five weeks, you just, you can't help but have some questions about whether he actually is the guy. And it doesn't help that the offensive line is still a disaster, which is going to stun his development. Thank you, Dave Gettleman. <laughs> but the turnovers are still a glaring problem. And he hasn't thrown a touchdown since week one. He hasn't thrown one touchdown since week one. And he threw two in week one. And since then, we've, we've gotten a donut four weeks in a row. And that's just unacceptable in today's NFL. And he's honestly, I haven't, I, I, I haven't seen a quarterback not able to go through his progressions since I, the Giants of 2017 when Eli was just getting sacked after two seconds every single time. Yeah, the good news, though, I think, for the Giants, they've been playing hard. 
They do get a team they can beat coming in on Sunday and watching it. I think they have a great shot to win this game. What do you think the big key is here for them to get in the win column finally? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we both touched on it. The Giants showed some improvement over the last few weeks. They're playing tough, and they were away from home playing tough. Washington has enough of its own problems. They benched Dwayne Haskins, and let's be real, they literally don't even have an identity. They don't have a name. So I'll say this. For the Giants to beat Washington, they need to eliminate the silly penalties. They had eight penalties for 81 yards last week, and that really cost them against the Cowboys. And they have to show the same tenacity as they have the last few weeks. Come out like you're 10-5, and five, and this win gets you to the playoffs. Take care of the football, win the battle in the trenches, and execute. And I know that's what Joe Judge is saying. He's definitely a trenches kind of guy. And I do think they win their first game of the season this week. But nothing, and I mean nothing, surprises me anymore with this team. So if they go out and put up an absolute stinker of a performance and lose 31-3, to will I be shocked? No, they lost to Nick Mullins 36-9 to or whatever the score was. So... Yeah, I, I could see that. I do think they're going to win this game. Although I, I think you have to be, have some hope for is that because the Giants' division is absolutely terrible. Like, who knows? This could be a year where six and ten gets you a division title in the NFC East if you just happen to take care of your business in the division. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the Giants get the six wins, but I wouldn't be shocked if six wins wins the division this year. There are some bad football teams in the NFC East. The Eagles, we at least thought would be a contender to make like a maybe sneak in the playoffs, and they've been an absolute disaster. Carson Wentz has regressed since he came into the league. Um, obviously, the, the, the Redskins, like we just said, are, are a disaster. And the Cowboys just, you know, they do Cowboys things just like the Giants do Giants things. It's just it's inexplicable for the Cowboys, though, because they have the talent. Um, but now, you know, you lose Tyron Smith. You lose Dak Prescott. So there's a bunch of question marks. But, we'll, you know, I still think that the Cowboys end up winning the division pretty handily. Yeah, I do, too. Let's get to the reason you're here today. We're going to do some NFL picks. My good, my good friend Chris, not the Mad Dog Russo, was here last week. He did go two and one on the week. He had the Dolphins plus eight in in San Francisco as the 49ers. He won that one outright. He had the Texans laying six at home against the Jaguars. They won that one going away. He did lay the two and a half with our good friend Dandy Martinez Colts against the Browns, and that one backfired him. So two and one on the week for Chris. Yeah, it's not that's not bad. Two and one. I think I've gone two and one the last two times I made the pick. So I'm hoping to improve to three and zero. Oh. Yeah, the, he did go 2-1. I, I gave him a lot of credit for the Dolphin pick. That was not one I would have gone near, and he did take care of business on that. But I, on the other hand, I feel pretty good about this week. I did go 3-0 and last week. 3-0 and on the week. I had the Ravens laying the 13-and-a-half in Cincinnati against, against the Cincinnati Bengals. They won that game running away. They had the, Charger, uh, the Chargers plus seven and a half on Monday night against the Saints. They covered the number. They should have won that game outright if the kick, if uh, Michael Badgley's kick does not doink off the upright. And I delayed the Cardinals, laid the seven against the Jets. That seems to be easy money. So three and all in the week there. Yeah, yeah. You kind of you got an easy one with that Cardinals, huh? Yeah, the Cardinals. It was a little suspect. Yeah, so on the year, both sides are off to a hot start. But Challenger's 11 and four. You know, Phil, I'm actually 13 and two on the week, on the year. Mike, you're, you're you're getting better every year. Look at you. Yep, we are going to go at it again, though. Week number six picks are up. Phil, you're up with your first pick. Where are you going? All right, so uh, I'm going to go with one of the more uh, highly anticipated matchups between these two teams in a very long time. Pittsburgh minus three and a half over Cleveland. Now, uh, these teams come into the year with a uh, combined eight and one record. And while Baker Mayfield has silenced some of the critics from seasons past, I'm still not completely sold on the Browns. 
a win in Pittsburgh would certainly raise my eyebrows, but I'm still taking Pittsburgh at home, 31-27. Hey, hard to not go with the Steelers there, especially considering we were recording on Thursday. OBJ had to leave practice today because he was ha- as he's feeling sick under the weather. And if he can't play the game, that's a big problem for the Steelers. But that's one I think I personally stay away from. That's my opinion. Where are you going with your next pick? Okay, um, yeah, well, I'm going to go with Dallas. They're, uh, they're at home. They're plus two and a half over Arizona. And now, I, you know, it might be easy to count Dallas out one week after losing their leader, Dak Prescott, and their linchpin tackle, Tyron Smith, the season-ending injuries. But I'll take a saying at Elite Corso's book and say, not so fast. Dallas has an extremely capable backup in Andy Dalton who's getting the opportunity to prove that he's still got it. Pair that with a plethora of weapons that the Cowboys have. And I think at home, they don't have too much trouble with Arizona. Sure, the Cardinals are an improved team, and I think Tyler Murray's a fun guy to watch. But I just simply see Dallas as the more motivated club coming into this week's matchup. Dallas takes this one easily, 34-21. I love that pick. I'm right there with you because I think this is one where the Cardinals, I don't think they're going to be up for the primetime moment here. I think everybody's forgetting that Dalton's the good quarterback. He can win games with the kind of weapons he has. And if the Cowboys getting points at home, give me that all day against the Cardinals team. That did not look that great against the Jets, right? Winning by 20. I completely agree. So, uh, yeah, my last, my last game I picked... I'm going to take Indianapolis. So uh, Chris Chris had some trouble with them last week, but I'm going to go with a minus eight over Cincinnati. And I know I'm taking a bit of a risk here, especially because of Indy's defensive leader, Darius Leonard, has was mispracticed again. It's his fourth straight mispractice, so his status is still up in the air. But I'm saying he's going to play. It's a crucial game for the Colts. They dropped a tough one to Cleveland last week, and they're two games behind in the lost column to Tennessee. And while Cincinnati's slowly falling out of the doldrums of the NFL and making themselves into a more respectable opponent, the Colts' defense is still very tough. And we know what tough defenses do to the rookie, Mike Phillips. They make them look like the rookie. Give me Indy over Cincinnati, 35-17. All right, there you have it. Hill's three picks. The Colts pick is interesting. I do like it. I'm just a little concerned about the number because the Colts don't score a lot of points themselves. That's, that's why I stayed away from it. But I can see the logic there. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. I, mean, I just, I, I think that uh, the Colts come back. They, they come back with a, a good performance this week after kind of throwing up a thud last week. And Jeed, I'm up now. With my picks, pick number one. I'm going to continue the trend here. It's easy money. Played at the points with the Dolphins, minus eight against the Jets. The Jets are the worst team in football. Sam Darnold's out again. Makai Becton's out again. Le'Veon Bell is gone. Brashad Perriman might not play. Adam Gase, the worst coach in football. The Jets lose by an average of 17 and a half points a game this season, and the Dolphins are only laying it at home after they put a big whipping on the 49ers last week. Give me those eight points, the Dolphins. The Jets are going 0-6 against the spread. Pick one. No, no faith in your Jets, Mike. No faith. <laughs> it's easy money. They lose every game by double digits, and this number has not hit that high yet. Even the one it did, the Colts covered. That's true. The New York Times had the Jets as one of the upset picks this week, too. <laughs> I don't know what they're on, but they're, they're wrong about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, pick number two. I'm going to one of the big games of the week. I'm taking the Green Bay Packers, laying two and a half on the road against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I think Tampa Bay, this number started out as Tampa Bay favorite, quickly fixed the Packers. Green Bay is one of the best teams in the league. People kind of forgot about that last year because they had played a bunch of close games. Aaron Rodgers on a mission to prove that the Packers need to stay taking Jordan Love. You get Devontae Adams back this week, hopefully, which will help. Tampa Bay is in very sketchy, even when they have their guys healthy. I know they're getting back Chris Godwin and Mike Evans healthier, but I just don't trust the Bucks here in this spot against a much better football team. The play against the Bears concern me. And the Packers had two weeks to get ready for this game. I can win with a field goal here. Give me the Packers laying two and a half, pick two. 
Yeah, I'd have to agree with you there. That was going to be one of my picks if I didn't take uh, Indianapolis over Cincinnati. Yeah, I think that's a number is irresistible for me, not number two. And pick number three, I have to go the dog this week. And this is what I look at this. I'm like, how are the Detroit Lions favor on the road against anyone in this league? The Lions are three and a half point favorites in Jacksonville. And Jacksonville, I know it's not been good most this year, but they have a feisty quarterback in Gardner Minshew. They got some capable weapons. Detroit's defense is still a dumpster fire. Matt Patricia's team is coming off the bye. It's not like they have momentum coming in there. They just blew a big game against the Saints for it. I don't think the Lions should favor in this game. I'm getting the hook with the Jags. is great. So give me Jacksonville plus three and a half, my final pick of the week. Yeah, I can't fault you for that pick right there. Although, Detroit might take a 21-0 lead and blow it like they do every week. So yeah. Plus, I love the hook here. And the Lions on the road should not be favoring against anyone, in my opinion. Except the Jets. Yeah, no, I, I don't think that. I don't think they've done anything to deserve uh, being a home, uh, an away favorite. Yeah. So reset the picks of the week. Phil has gone with the Steelers, laying three and a half at home against the Cleveland Browns. The Dallas Cowboys getting two and a half at home on Monday night against the Arizona Cardinals, and the Indianapolis Colts laying eight points against the Cincinnati Bengals. I have the Dolphins laying eight points against the New York Jets in the lock of the week. The Green Bay Packers laying two and a half on the road against Tampa Bay. And the Jacksonville Jaguars as three-and-a-half-point home dogs against the Detroit Lions. And those are your picks for week number six on the podcast. Next week, I'm going to be joined by Sports Grid's Kevin Walsh Jr., a big Eagles guy. So we're going to be talking Giants-Eagles next week, and that's going to be on the short week. So that's going to be interesting to see how the Giants handle that. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, I think that game is going to be a lot of fun. I think the Giants, they could have a shot there. Honestly, you know, the way they've played the last couple of weeks, they, they kind of surprised a lot of people. So who knows? Maybe they pull out a couple of games, you know, in the middle of the year that you don't expect them to win. But at the same time, they're still a disaster in many areas. So you wouldn't be surprised if they lose every game from here on out. So I would not either. Also, best of luck in fantasy football this week. We are playing in my league in week number six. That's so going to be a big game for both of us. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge matchup. I think, um, I don't know. Do we play in my league too, actually? I don't, I, think, I don't think we do. I think he played already. I think he beat me in your league. Oh, okay. Well, then you're my only win. <laughs> I'm one in, I'm one in four with the most points in the league. At fantasy owners all around the world, you can feel my pain. The most points in the league, but I'm one in four. Yeah, that sometimes that happens to you in fantasy. But Phil, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate. It. Before I let you go, I can people find on social media. I'll keep up with some of the stuff you're up to. Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram. My uh, my my handle is Filtograph. P H I L T O G R A P H S. All right, Phil, it's a lot of fun. Also, one question for you. Did you get the chance to check out the uh, Craig Carton documentary on HBO last week? No, I didn't, but that is on my list. I have it saved and ready to go. Yeah, I'm glad you do. Check that out. When you come back, when the podcast comes back, I'm going to be joined by our our pop culture guys, Alan Austin. We're going to talk about the Craig Carton documentary and more right after this. All right, we are back here talking a little pop culture stuff, and we're actually melding the world of pop culture and sports this week with a look at the HBO documentary that aired last week on Wednesday, Wild Card, Fall of a Loudmouth, about Craig Carton's uh, issues with the gambling that led to his arrest by the FBI and his life after the fact. Join me today, one of our pop culture team here, the great Alan Austin is back. Alan, how are you? 
I'm well, Mike. Thanks for having me. How are you, sir? Doing pretty good. And I have to say, I did check this out the day after it aired, and I would—I admit, it was very intriguing. Yes, I, I watched it that night. I could not wait. And that, the Showtime app does something that HBO doesn't, and that's it's going to release it at 9 a.m. regardless of what time it premieres. So when I jumped on HBO at like 5 p.m., I'm like, where is it? Where is it? And I'm like, ah, they don't put it on at the beginning of the day. So I waited and waited, and I watched it that night, and I loved that it was only a buck 26 in the runtime. And... I thought it was very, very interesting. And there was a lot that they crammed into that amount of time. But I also have some things that I wish they expanded on. So uh, what did you think of it? I was very intrigued by it because I think they did spend a good amount of time setting up the backstory here. And speaking of backstory, I want to start there. Like, what was your background with Boomer, with the Boomer and Carton show when it was actually on the air on WFAN? So it ran for 10 years from 2007 to 2017. And a lot of that time, I actually was not around the New York area. I, I graduated high school in 2007 and went to college for four years in the Pittsburgh area. And then in 2014, I moved to Los Angeles. But that whole time, I had heard from some of my best friends about Boomer and Carton, about how funny it was, about how it wasn't your typical, you know, morning drive sports talk show. It was more like a radio show in the vein of not as raunchy as, but in the Opie and Anthony kind of, we're going to have jokes, we're going we're gonna to mess around with our guests. And then when I would be home for periods of time, they would be a must listen for me. So like, my fondest memories of Boomer and Carton are Carton just ripping on the likes of Susan Waldman or Jerry Manuel or Mike Francesa and just going on and on. And I definitely listened to the podcast version of episodes, like the, the cut episodes to get the greatest hits or whatever. I was a fan for sure. Yeah. I remember that show. They like, I, like I was not much of a morning person back then, but I would always managed to cheat my eye on what the highlights were. I remember they did a good job hitting some of the big moments of that era, like especially the moment when the Carton actually walked down the like the Brooklyn Bridge in a speedo after the Giants pulled off a big upset in the playoffs. That was fun. Like, and he was, as they show pointed out, like, he was just a true radio personality where like he could put on an entire act for himself, and then when when the mic flipped off, he was just normal Craig. Yeah, I think the one thing the documentary had to do for people who may not be familiar with Carton is kind of showcase like wacky skits and wacky bits he did, like wearing masks and jumping on tables. But I think Carton's real humor was just, you know, the the real honest takes on things. So I, I get what they had to do with like the wackiness to show he's wacky. But my joy when listening to Carton wasn't necessarily wacky. It was more his intense, no nonsense humor, humor on situations around the New York sports market. Yeah, that's for sure. And we've, we've heard Carton over the years get very animated on a number of topics. And as this documentary did very well, they did point out a lot about like, the amount of gambling stuff Carton brought to the show. And I think to me, the most intriguing parts of this whole thing were the deep dive into gambling. This is something, I mean, I'll admit I do gambling on this podcast. We do NFL picks every week. We'll talk about stuff like the over-unders or March Madness, but 
the level Craig went to with the gambling, it just it just showed you like how dangerous it can be if you get too addicted to something. Absolutely. And and I myself have felt like I've played a little too much blackjack now that it's in New Jersey. It is available on your phone at any time, day or night. And I've had to stop. And I haven't lost nearly as much money as they claim to have, Craig have lost in this film to the point where like what I thought was a gambling problem for me it was like nothing it was like a joke compared to what this guy and others like him have gone through i mean to me the most shocking revelation in the film was the loss of the 1.5 million plus the 500,000 on top of it in one night when he was already up that was crazy and the betting uh $30,000 a hand that is just astronomical and i could not believe my ears yeah, I couldn't either. I mean, this stuff with Carton with the gambling goes back to like his, like I said, it goes back to his childhood because he the story about when he was a kid and how he was using the Intellivision game to basically run a mini gambling ring. He basically like won a kid's bike off of him. I was like, wow. Yeah, that goes to show that it's something that he was confident in as well. Yeah. It was built early, this confidence that he cannot lose when it comes to blackjack. And it spun out of control, clearly, to the point where the man spent time in prison. And he said that that was his biggest fear his entire life was going to prison. Yet, ultimately, he didn't stop himself from doing so because of the addiction. Yeah. And I forget the name of the expert they had on there. But they made a great point about the analogy of the blackjack. He said, honestly, they said doing blackjack is like doing cocaine because, like, you guys need to hit to get the action and they sort of get the rush from doing it. I could see sort of how it sort of builds that addiction like in you of like, Oh, I need more. I need to get another hit. One more hand, one more hand. And the point of Carton not being able to sit and wait for the cards to be shuffled is a prime example of that in his case. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's another clear sign. Cause usually like he said, it's like the five minutes waiting for them to, to, to shuffle a deck, which is too long for him. He just needed to get that rush of the action right away. And, the one story I think I, I've heard people on the WFAN like show who were interviewed in this thing, like Boomer or Sison, Al Dukes, the whole crew was like the whole moment. The Boomer bet really sort of was like the, the count, like the, the catalyst for all this. When he makes a bet on air with Boomer, that Boomer giving ten thousand dollars of his money and he can double it, and he ends up winning. I think like a hundred thousand dollars total. So like that is like I feel like that was in the moment like fun radio, but. It, really set off like a domino effect really changed the course of like Craig's Craig's life. Yeah. And you gotta like, it's tough because when you're put on a show radio or anywhere, you like to make good content and you don't necessarily think all the time of what are the consequences? You know what I mean? And, and it gets trickier when it does have to do with stuff that is addiction based and gambling and it's a crazy thing because this is a guy who worked for WFAN, is clearly a gambling addict, went to prison because his gambling and side businesses and interests got out of control. Yet on WFAN now, almost every other bump to break is a is a uh, ad for a sports gambling website that you're getting a special code to join. And it's just so crazy to me that like, it's like a cautionary tale, but there's also heavy influence for you to do it anyway. Isn't that crazy? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, John's a strength right now on WFA. I think Nightly has like an odds-on sports show or it's just like six at six story talking about gambling every single night. Yeah, and I get it that that's where the money is now, especially in New Jersey where it's legal and the, the big listener market for WFN. It's just, it's almost counterproductive to release this documentary and the people who are going to watch it mainly are those who are told every day, join William Hill, join DraftKings, join FanDuel. It's so ironic and I, I, I just, it, it boggles my mind a little bit, but I, I get it, but it's, it's crazy. Yeah, I don't know if I missed this, but did they put like a thing at the end of documentaries offering resources for people who have gambling addictions or did they not include that? Uh, if they did, I did not see it. I think that's a miss if they didn't do it. And again, I have to go back and double check the tape and see if they put something in there. But like in this day and age, I think you do need to include something in there about that. Absolutely, especially because Chris Christie was the big attack opioid governor. And he was featured heavily in this film. You've got to offer the resources. You've got to show that there's a serious tale here that needs to be listened to and learned from. Yeah, and what else from the film really stuck out to you? What really caught your attention? Well, you talk about offering resources for gambling victims. They should also be offering resources for victims of sexual abuse and where they can reach out for help because that was something that I was not expecting from this film. And why would you, you know what I mean? You don't know the man's life, but to hear that story was pretty crazy, especially from someone like Carton, who always seems so sure of himself and that he's been hiding this traumatizing experience for most of his life, really shocking stuff. And, uh, definitely, definitely shocked by its revelation here in this film. Yeah, and, they, and that was obviously a very powerful story. And they did a good job giving it context by showing his on-air reactions to the Jerry Sandusky story. And I remember at the time saying, I'm like, wow, like Craig is taking this very seriously. And it's something that's not out of, that's like out of character for like goofy Craig. But like once you understand the context, oh, that's why he's taking it so seriously. Them using that clip of Sandusky was really strong. Yeah. Yeah, like I think that was a great example. Because even Boomer in the interview said like, I never seen Craig get so wound up on something like that. And now you understand why. And I think that does show the importance of it. And I think that's another missed opportunity of the film. I know they definitely didn't see anything about like promoting like, Oh, like if you need resources for that area, go there. I didn't, I was disappointed in that. For sure. For sure. And again, it may have happened after the credits, but that should be the first thing you see after they say Craig is negotiating a new deal. Boom. Then your resources. Yeah, you brought that up, Peace, and this is one thing that they meant on there. They said Craig's negotiated radio comeback because he's out of prison right now. He's seemed to have gotten his life in order. The rumor right now is that he's going to go back to WFAN and take over Afternoon Drive with an ex-athlete. And I get the WFAN conundrum because Joe and Evan have been moved to midday to take the Francesa slot, and they've gotten killed in the ratings pretty much like by IK since they got there. Do you think that's the right fit there? Here's my conundrum because I, and, and this is in all honesty, I enjoy Boomer and Geo more than I enjoyed Boomer and Cart. Yeah. And I liked Boomer and Cart, but I just think Boomer and Geo is a more complete, more, more lighthearted, yet still hilarious show. So I'm a huge fan of Boomer and Geo. Now, I think if you put on ex-athletes and create Carton in the afternoon drive, 
you're almost going to get a similar kind of show. And I think that's not necessarily good. I think you need diversity. You need you need diversity in content. You need different types. Like, if you look at the fan lineup now, you've got Boomer and Geo, who are hilarious in the morning. You've got Moose and Maggie, who are way more X's and O's and sports talk based on what happened, what they think will happen, uh, interviews with guests. And you've got Joe and Evan, who are kind of the mix of the two because their comedy comes from being disgruntled sports fans and pointing out the obvious, yet they also care about the games and what's going to happen. So I think if you if you pile it on with Carton and the guests, you're going to get the first show, but a little harsher, and it's going to be not enough. You, you need, I think, a little bit more of a mix. So I'm a little worried that that might be too similar to Boomer and Geo. And I don't necessarily think it's going to beat Michael K at the moment. And that, that's just how I feel uh, about that. And then you, I could see a disagreement the other way. It's just, I, uh, I don't know. How, I, I don't necessarily think it's the, the, the move. And I think it's going to be odd having Carton take the Francesa spot, which Boomer and Carton would make fun of for so many years. Yeah, I get the appeal from WWE. It's like, oh, he's a name. He'll draw ratings. And people. And when we had him on our air, he was good. And I've heard the ripple effects basically be like, I will admit the Joe and Evan thing did not, I don't think it's working in the midday, in the drive time slot because like Joe's shtick, I think has gotten a bit old because it's very repetitive. And like, you can tell at times like he's kind of mailing in the performance. I think he did want to retire before they incentivize him to move up with the raise. I can see, okay, maybe get Joe out of there. I think maybe... If and they're talking about moving Evan back to midday with Maggie Gray, sort of like that's sort of like knocks my friend of the podcast, Martin Lewis, is out of the mix. None of this is confirmed. Obviously, I expect an announcement coming some point around November. But I think what if, what if you sort of leave the midday intact? What if you put like JJ with Evan? I think that dynamic would be more fun. Yeah, I think it would be more fun. I would also be interested in the JJ and Carton mix. Yeah, get rid of the ex athlete thing. The ex athlete thing is so hit or miss generally. Just get two New York-based sports guys with big personalities together and see what happens for you know a couple months. All this is trial and error anyway. And the WF fans had some rocky roads to navigate. I mean, Carton's situation is still pretty fresh, only a couple years old. You had the uh, Carlin, Bart, and Maggie show. Just this, you know, it just disrupted and exploded on them. And a lot of that WF fans self-inflicted wounds, I believe. Yeah. So now you're going to have the new schedule just get changed again. Tells you how tough radio is. But I think, I, I do worry, Mark Malusis is a great guy, and I do worry that he's going to be the casualty of all this, and that makes me very upset. Yeah, it, it does, because, like, I do think, like, Moose is obviously a very loyal guy to that station, and, like, I think, like, he brings a lot to it, and I think having a nice, like, a defined slot for him is good, but, like, I get the look optics of it on their end. And I might say, okay, like, if we, like, it's hard for us because, like, I think, like, the odd one out besides Joe, I don't think, like, like, the transition radio for Mackie has not been great. And I get part of that was just the constant change of the partners and, like, the changing time slots. But, like, I get WFA in this day and age does not want to say, oh, boy, we want, we want to get rid of our only, like, female, like, t- like radio sports radio host. I get that part of it. Yeah, I, I get it. It's, it's a business. You know, we as fans have our favorites, but they, like Mark Chernoff, 
for whichever shows he produces there. I don't know if he's in charge of the whole station, but he's got a business to run and it's very tricky and it's, it's in 2020, it's harder than ever. So it's going to be something to watch for sure. But I tell you what, I will, for one, be listening to that first card show when it airs, no matter where or when it is. Yeah, I think that's basically a lock. I feel like they're just sort of right now trying to figure out who to put him with. I think, that, like I said, I think watch late November. Usually they announce it because I think like you'll get previews of Carton in December, and then like January 1, January 2 will be when they roll out their new lineup. Yes, okay, so I'm very interested to see. And one more thing about the film – I wish they touched on his family a little bit more. And I know they say at the beginning, I didn't want my family to be a part of this, but I still think that's such a huge deal for people who are dealing with gambling addictions or stuff like that to know how it worked out with his family. Did his wife ever leave him and come back to him? Was she there for him the whole time and support? I, I really wanted to know how the family aspect went. I think it could have been covered without involving them. Yeah, I agree with that. That was one thing that's definitely missing and I because I noticed that like none of his family members were interviewed for the piece I get. Carton probably said like they don't have like you want me, you don't get them in it. But I think you can at least ask Craig the question and let Craig tell you what happened on that end. Hundred percent. I think it's a big glaring omission that they don't. Okay, so if we were to grade Wildcard, how would you grade it? I'd give it a I'd give it a B plus. The John Stanko B plus? No, because that's an A plus plus. I'm giving it a normal. I'm giving it a normal B plus. I think for someone outside the New York market who doesn't know Carton and they watch this film, they're gonna maybe think that the heavier issues were not expanded on enough because they don't know who this guy is. So they're not connected through just oh, I'm a Craig Carton fan. They're gonna want to know you know, about the family aspect, about the the abuse aspect, which they do cover well, but I think there could have been a little bit more to it. So to spend so much time on the radio stuff is, is well and good for people like us. But for someone who's not watching the film, I'm trying to think, who's not familiar with the, the cast of characters, I'm trying to think how they would react. So I give it a B plus. I think, I think it's very well done. I think all the talking heads are effective. I think they go into the gambling and the severity of it. I, I think it's a very, very good documentary. Yeah, I give it a B because it held my attention. It was certainly well done. It was pretty good, but it was just those things that were missing. It just sort of keep it from going to that next level for me. Like it's watchable, sure. Like you watch it, like, and I was not tempted to you know look at my phone or go on the computer. That gets points for me. But like, is it one I'm dying to go back and revisit? No. So that's why I think it sells it a B for me. That's fine. And one other thing, I, a feeling I had after the film was come back to me in a year and six months to see if he's not in jail again. Yeah. And that's not to say he will be. I, I don't have expectations that he will be, but it's the kind of story. And you know, addicts, how many times does an addict need to find bottom before they truly get out of it? And I know he went to prison, but I'd like to see a follow up, see how he's doing in six months or so. Because I think by releasing the documentary now, you don't give yourself the opportunity to be like, he's fully redeemed. You kind of give a, we hope he's fully redeemed. Here he is having walking, he's walking across the Brooklyn Bridge as a free man. But really, we don't know how time after prison has tempted him or not. 
Yeah, I wonder, like, maybe if you're, if you're right about that. Maybe it's better served if, like, in, in like, a year we we had his release next year and we get some perspective of, like, him back on the air and, like, his new partner and people WFAN now because, like, and I do think it's interesting. And, like, I also think another thing I just thought of now that they didn't cover in there is, like, I wonder, like, if we could have gotten a little tiny bit uh, from, like, Geo about, like, what it was like to try and, like, rebuild that show after he left. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, I think what you just said is perfect. To release the film a year from now, because they do end it with the information that he negotiated a new deal. So why are we rushing the release of this? Because 2020 and you need content. But at the same time, I think it would have been much more effective to add another 10 minutes, five even, in a year from now with more updated information to complete the film. Yeah, I think you could have made it, made it hour 35 and been fine. I think that, that works for that. But let's move on to some other things while we're here. And I do want to acknowledge it because we did do a draft offline for this. The Big Brother All-Star season, big bust. And unfortunately, I think your team was the first one completely wiped out. <laughs> it happens. I mean, it's just a... Uh, I've, he- I've been reading a lot of you know comments that season 16 ruined the show in the sense that <laughs> you find a group you bond together and you don't break the alliance. And then once it gets down to the final six or so, you take each other out. And I did hear that because season 16 is so well regarded with its cast of characters, that players who aren't familiar with the game, that's the season that casting gives them to watch. So that's the way they learn to play the game. So it's kind of a conundrum, but you would think all stars would be able to avoid that. And the players who would have avoided that were all bound because of that strategy. So it really did take over the game and where we're at now, I am literally not rooting for anyone who's left. So it's a, it's like I'm watching because I'm a fan more so than because I'm connected or care for any of these people. And that's a problem. Yeah, that is a problem. I mean, like I've seen here that as of recording, there are five people left in the game. I happen to have three of the five left in the draft. So I'm probably going to win it. But like, I'm not I'm not invested in it really because like I'm just sort of watching because like okay I'm a fan I like the show but like it's not really like oh I have to root for so and so to win it's not it's not interesting to me because it's like, at this point it's like yes they got unlucky where like a couple of times the underdogs could have like were like seconds away or like inches away from winning a competition and changing the balance of power in the game but the big alliance steamrolled everything and then that's it and then it was just like good night and that's all that really happened this season yeah and Enzo not voting out. Nicole over David was a real missed opportunity for some glimmer of hope for fans watching. And this is coming from a character who is probably the most likable left in the house. And yet he's still chickened out after he's been saying he's going to make a big move. He's going to make a big move and didn't do anything. So it's just been an overall disappointing season, which, you know, I cannot wait for next season where there's a cast of all new people and hopefully it happens. Hopefully they don't show them season 16 and, and whenever they show them what to no. do. They show them 20. Show them 17. I think that would be a better, a better season. 17 was a little bit more well-rounded. Not as, not as exciting, but I'm actually a fan of 17. Yeah, I think they'll I think they'll give them 20. And 20, at least you'd have some hope there. For sure. Yes, and obviously, we'll have a little fun with this. Like, off the top of your head, like, obviously, one thing about that experience of Big Brother is that they're stuck inside a house. They get no access to the outside world. They're in this bubble and literally and they have no idea what's been going on in the world as a whole. So like what's like one thing what's like 
let's have let's do a quick little mini draft here. Give me like we'll do two things each. Like, what do you think they're gonna be most shocked to find out when they leave the house? I'll give you the first choice. Well, the first choice is the president of the United States getting the coronavirus, which he <laughs> was so against for so long and we couldn't possibly get it. Oh my god. That would be the most shocking thing so far, for sure, for them to find out. Yeah, I think for me, the next one I'll stay on that political theme is like just showing them what the first debate looked like. I think that in itself, they'll just be like, what the hell happened in here? I think a lot of them will wish they can go back into the house and the solitary confinement. Yeah. I I think uh, the house or solitary confinement rather than listen to that debate or watch what happened. Yeah, that's that's true. And what about like, yeah, what one more? Give me one more thing. You you'd be surprised to find out that when they leave the house. Sure, and I'll keep it sports. I believe Memphis is a Miami Heat fan. Yeah, because he made a comment during their little sitcom segment with Kaiser that things we're missing right now. The Heat go to the finals, and the Heat are in the finals and surviving. So I think, at least for Memphis, not that he deserves any good news based on the way he's carried himself this season. But I think he'd be shocked to see the Heat in the finals. Yeah, the Heat are in the finals as of recording. They're down 3-2 to the Lakers. I picked the Lakers in six. I think by the time this comes out, the series <laughs> will be over. But You're a genius. I think right now, I think my other pick would be, like, if you told those people that Dancing with the Stars picked Carol Baskin to be on the show, I think they would be like, what? <laughs> <laughs> but they wouldn't be surprised that she got bounced quickly. No, I, I talked about this with Sandra Rose a couple of weeks ago. We said the over-under was three weeks on the show, and she got bounced at three weeks in. So it ended up working exactly at the number. Yeah, I felt bad for Charles Oakley. thought he deserved better. He did, but I do I do feel better that Carol Baskin did not go far in this show. I still think she killed her husband. I mean, the guy who owns the rights to Eye of the Tiger is probably so upset because he figured there was at least three or four more times they could have used it over the season. Yeah, that, that's true, and... <laughs> Lily Big Brother in the past. One thing that has come out of late, I am going to play the spoiler warning for this one. The Haunting of Bly Manor is now out on Netflix. The follow-up to Haunting of Hill House. Al, I know you love that. I'm going to do the full season down the line with Sandra Rosa in pop culture segments in the future. But right now, you and I got to watch the premiere. What was your big takeaway? My big takeaway is I had to stop at 36 minutes in because it started getting into doll stuff. And as a kid, nothing frightens me more than Chucky, Chucky the doll. So if I'm going to watch doll content, I've got to be up as early as possible to be able to get through the day afterwards without worrying about it. Because as as much as people are afraid to admit what they're scared of, I am not. That's scary doll content. So I am very intrigued. I think if the little girl said absolutely splendid or whatever it was one more time, my head was going to explode. But I think that's the point. And I definitely was creeped out. And it's nice to see Mike Flanagan using the same actors from season one in different roles, which I thought was really nice touch. Yeah. I mean, the lead is Victoria is uh, Olivia Pedretti who played, I think like Victoria, Victoria in the first or first season, I'm probably messing the name up, but like she's the lead here in this season, and we've seen a couple of the other actors pop off already, which is pretty cool. I do think this one has a lot. Obviously, has the the doll thing is creepy as hell. I'm with you on that. Like it makes <laughs> like it literally the kids also are like a little like 
little out there, and I'm like a little concerned about them. But I do think they set a lot more mystery elements up in the premiere than they did in the Hill House premiere. Yeah, the Hill House premiere did a lot of you know exposition as needed, and then they hit you at the end with kind of what the season's going to be all about. While this one was way more suspenseful, I thought. Like, right from the jump, you see a, a, a familiar face, I'll say. You're not sure where it's going. And I'm very, very I'm, I'm interested. Like, there were a couple jump scares that I've seen so far that were very effective and also went, you know, had me go, okay, how is this going to play into the rest of the story? So I am in. I will be watching. And I thought the casting of the children was perfect. They are the creepiest kids you could ever imagine. The girl, Flora, is adorable. And I'm afraid that that's going to that's gonna be truly haunting, especially because the narrator, so to speak, the person telling the story kind of hints that the kids may or may not be ghosts. So I'm very interested to see where this goes. And obviously, the... You know, there are some trailer spoilers, which I've already been able to point out how they're going to fit at least a little bit into the story, which kind of bums me out because to see the reveals later on, I think would have been more effective. But trailers always do that stuff. Yeah, so I stayed clear of the trailer. So I'm going to watch the episodes and just get, like, in there. And they did a good job setting up some elements without, like, really telling you much. Like, the main character constantly covering the mirrors is definitely interesting. I really wonder why she's doing that. And you had one of the, like, one of the, like, people who lives in the house, like, just doesn't eat, and you have Lily's you wondering, like, why isn't she eating ever? Like, there are, like, nice little, like, mystery bits that are popping up throughout the episodes. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm in. I have to finish the first episode. I'll probably watch it at 9 a.m. sharp <laughs> at some point soon, and then continue from there, because it's all stuff. It just gives me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be in for the long run on that. What else have you been keeping up with on, on, the, on the stuff? What have you been streaming? Well, right now, I'm my fiance and I are streaming Shit's Creek, which I had never seen, and we're already on season three episode. We're on the finale of season three, and we only started watching like a couple weeks ago. I had never seen it. It swept the Emmys, which was shocking. So we decided to finally sit down and give it a shot, and it is highly enjoyable. Yeah, I think that's definitely a fun one. As you can know, I never really pay much attention to, until the Emmys, so that's something I'm considering going to. I, I'm keeping an eye on that. Like I've been obviously in game show mode because every, it's like there's game shows every single night on TV, which is very fun for me because I'm a big game show guy. I cannot wait for the, like I said, Supermarket Street coming back next week on Sunday. That's going to be fun. I think all this, the ABC game shows, and I'm intrigued to check out. Like I want to get to the 30 for 30 on Oscar Pistorius that they put on ESPN+. Plus. I do want to check that out. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds interesting. And one other thing I streamed recently, which you and I have talked about off-air, was the Watchmen series, and I am a huge fan of that. I thought it was grade A excellent, and much better than the movie that came out in 09. Yeah, the Watchmen series I did with John Stanko a couple times. I did the premiere and the finale, and we were a hooked eye from the jump, and it just got better and better and better. And like the the flashback episode where... Regina King's character basically like lives the life of her grandfather it was like literally I think one of the best hours television I've ever seen produced. It was really strong. And another episode that I thought was just like a fine, fine hour was the 
third episode, which did the deep dive on Silk Spectre. Yeah. I thought that was so good, which was bookended by the phone call, the joke over the phone call. Like, just so good. Everything about the show was spectacular. There was one thing I thought they could have expanded on and, and kind of went deeper with, but other than that, it was just perfect. How did you like the Ozymandias twist, how they played that? Excellent. Yeah. Excellent, 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 because he is a truly deep, confused individual. Because he tries desperately to be a, a face, so to speak, but he is a heel through and through. So it's this interesting dynamic, and I thought Jeremy Irons' portrayal was so layered and so detailed, and it was spectacular. Yeah, I love how they play with the time in that. About basically each one of his segments is like basically like skip like basically like a year in time, and they were sort of advancing him along. And I thought it was brilliant the way. And this is again, Swirls for Watchers now for a year, and you can go back to I think episode, I think it was like in the eighties. I talked about the finale of John Stanko, like when we realized that the statue of Ozymandias you see in early in the series, you realize that's actually him until the finale, and then that's a pretty wild reveal. It was awesome. Yeah, I actually like. I think I stopped and applauded that revelation because it was excellent. And another thing, how many series that are only eight or uh, nine episodes, and you don't meet the big bad until the fourth or fifth? Like that's crazy to me. And they pulled it off very well. Yeah, I'm, I'm with uh, John. I wrote the agree at the times. Like we are completely fine if it's just one and done, which right now is the plan for it. Because he's Dan Lindelof said, I have no more stories right now, so I'm not. I don't want to have it continued so hbo has done a great job in that regard where not saying oh you have to make another season because it was so good they're saying okay we trust your vision like if you have another one you're welcome to come back and do it de- like five years down the road yeah and i think now with the streaming capabilities it's not as necessary to redo it people are going to rewatch the first season for years look at the sopranos people just rewatch it and even though it's only one season people will rewatch it and i think if they do another season it's just bound to not be as good yeah, you need the right story if you're going to do that again. And Watchmen, the Watchmen story was covered. Like, you you got it. You did it, guys. Kudos to you. Awesome. Like, great ending, satisfying ending, and a lot of the characters meet the fate that they should, even for, for better or worse. Yeah. And- like, it was so well done. It was phenomenally done. And Alan, I want to thank you for all the time today. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, can you follow me on social media and keep up with the Alan Austin show? Of course, of course. The Alan Austin show is on YouTube. And the social media for me is on Twitter at Alan, A-L-O-E-N, underscore Austin, underscore. And on Instagram is Alan Austin Sports. All right, Alan. Thanks again. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Always a pleasure. All right, and that will do it for our second episode of the week. I want to thank my guests. First, Phil Lombardo for doing the week six NFL picks. A lot of fun there. Always a good conversation. Also, thank the guy you just heard, Alan Austin. We were talking about the HBO documentary on Craig Carton, talk Haunting Bly Manor, all of this good stuff as well. If you want more stuff like this podcast, including my look at what's going on with the NFL and the coronavirus. It's been a bit of a mess the first class couple of weeks. Hopefully they can get their act together with the final 12. Check out the blog over at justendthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. 
Amazon too, all the usual suspects. Just search for Just and the Suffering on your favorite podcatcher. You can check all our episodes there, including this week's earlier episode when I spoke to Will Schneider and Andy Sarbellini on the baseball beat. We broke down the MLB playoffs. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel, Mike Phillips, on YouTube for individual conversations. For example, our conversation with Alan today will be up on the YouTube channel shortly. You can also leave your feedback and star ratings as well. They are very important to make the podcast even better going forward. Please do that. It helps get the audience of this podcast a little bigger. Get it to more listeners. Help them join in on the fun. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. Follow along if you want to continue the conversation off the air. That's all for this week of podcasting. Up next, we're going to talk World Series on the podcast. We're going to preview that next week. Until then, have a good week, everybody. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.